the book of Acts in your Bibles this evening, Acts chapter 1, as we conclude the message from last Sunday morning that we ran out of time uh, trying to wrap it up, and so we're going to revisit Acts chapter 1 so that we can conclude this message this evening. Last Sunday morning, I introduced this message as the uh, as a uh, a message of of first principles and how that we learn from the first time something is mentioned we learn some strategic characteristics and teachings from that first mentioned passage and so last Sunday morning we introduced Acts chapter 1 uh, containing the first church service after Jesus physically left earth And so for the first time, uh, the church is functioning without Jesus Christ physically present to teach them, to guide them, to influence them, to help them. And so how did the church respond uh, to that uh, experience of, of Jesus Christ being gone and their functioning without Jesus Christ? And so we began to look at the uh, events following the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven and we learned that there was some some uh, emotional observations we could make about those believers when Jesus left. We, we compared it to when Jesus left them at the crucifixion. Now, he wasn't gone very long. He was crucified. He was gone for just a short period of time. But in that short period of time, they were scared. They feared. They ran. They hid. Uh, they were they were had a very difficult time when Jesus Christ wasn't there for the first time. Uh, but he was only gone for a number of hours. He was, uh, he was buried in the evening. He was in the grave that evening. The next day, in the morning of Sunday morning, it was just a day and a few hours on each end. And then he was back. And then he spent 40 days with his apostles uh, teaching them about what was in front of them and, and what the Great Commission was and what they were going to be doing uh, with, uh, in his absence. And so we saw that Jesus Christ, when he ascended up to heaven, there was an immediate emotional reaction from the church immediately after Jesus abandoned them or, or left them for the first time physically uh, in a permanent way. And, uh, and we saw that they were filled with, with joy and they were, they were worshiping God and the, the excitement of their heart and the exuberance of their heart went out into the public arena. And they would, were going to the temple, and they're on the temple. Uh, just, just 40 days after those Jews crucified Jesus, they were going on to the temple platform. And they were praising Jesus Christ, and they were blessing God publicly and openly because of the excitement that they were experiencing. So we saw there was an emotional um, uh, outburst from the people that was exciting. But, but what we really focused on was the actions they took. Rather than the emotion that flowed out of them, we focused on the actions. And we, we learned that there were two actions that they took. That is, when the church met together back in the upper room, 120 people, they, there were two prominent things that they did, actively did, that kind of became earmarks. They became known for two things. The first We looked at last Sunday morning, and that was that they focused on prayer. And the first meeting of the church 
after the physical absence of Jesus Christ was a corporate prayer meeting. It lasted for 10 days. And it probably went just about around the clock. They probably came and went uh, throughout the day and evening. But for 10 days, uh, the church met continually, regularly. The Bible says they continually, uh, they were pr- uh, there praying and going before the Lord. And so we, we looked at some, some, some truths that earmarked the first church with regards to corporate prayer. We looked at who was there, what their purpose was, what they did. And we learned some things about corporate church prayer meetings. And then we, we kind of broke off the message at that point. And I want us to wrap up the message this evening by looking at the second action that Jesus Christ took. The second action, it was immediate action of the church after Jesus. After focusing on prayer, we see a second thing that's on the bottom of your little worksheet this morning. And it's found in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse number 15. And goes to the end of the chapter, and that is they focused on obedience to the Word of God. I don't know how to emphasize the importance and power of this sufficiently because so many times the Word of God is absent in, in, in a, a lot of types of churches. The authority of the Word of God and the focus on the Word of God uh, has never been uh, pushed further away from the practice of, uh, of many kinds of churches. And it's, and it's important, I think, at the beginning of this year to go back to these first principles of the church operating in the absence of Jesus and remind ourselves that the church was known for its prayer meetings and the church was known for its obedience to the Word of God. And so I want to pick up here in verse number 15 and see... Uh, what happened with regards to the Word of God. Verse number 15 says, And in those days, those ten days of prayer meeting, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120, Men and brethren, this scripture. And so sometime during this time of prayer, this ten-day prayer meeting, at some point, Peter stood up, got everyone's attention, and then he said, The scriptures that we have learned had to be fulfilled. And then he went on to speak about how those scriptures were fulfilled. And Peter did two things that I want us to to, to take note of. Peter interpreted what had happened in their world by looking at God's word and seeing the pattern of fulfillment. Let me say that again. Peter interpreted what had happened in their world by looking at God's word and seeing the pattern of fulfillment. And then he also saw in God's word instruction on what they should do in the present. Now I want you to notice the emphasis on past and present. They had just gone through the 40 days following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as they looked back on the events of those 40 days, Peter said, you know, the Bible told us this was going to happen. And so they interpreted what had just happened in their past on the basis of what God's word had said in the Old Testament. But he didn't end it at that. He then said, we need to take action now and do some things today because of what the Bible tells us. So the Bible gives us the ability to interpret history and to interpret events that have occurred in the recent past And the Bible also gives us insight 
into making the right decisions and doing the right things today and tomorrow. Instruction for what we're to do. So let's look at these two things. You see the first little arrow there, past predictions fulfilled. Peter said, men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas. Now, Peter recognized divine inspiration of scripture. This is one of the great statements undergirding the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Peter said, and he, and he quoted from a couple of passages out of the Psalms that David had written. And, and, and Peter said, this was the Holy Ghost speaking by the mouth of David. Well, you won't get any clearer than that as to what divine inspiration is. When the Holy Spirit tells a human being what to write down on paper, that's, that's divine inspiration. And Peter recognized that what David wrote down in the Psalms were the words that the Holy Spirit had directed him to write down. So he recognized the divine authority and truthfulness of the Word of God that he had learned growing up. Remember, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so he's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures that he goes ahead and names. Now he said... Concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. It was Judas that led the Sanhedrin and the Roman soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Peter went on in verse 17 to say he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. He said that Judas was one of us. He was one of, the, uh, of, of we, the apostles. He had a part in our ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong burst asunder in the midst and his bowels gushed out and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem and so much that the field is called in the proper tongue El Selmida El Seldoma that is to say the field of blood for it is written in the book of Psalms let this habitation be desolate let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take so the, the Peter recognized that that what the Bible had said in the book of Psalms had come to fruition in the last 40 days that they observed, or 40, 40 days ago when Jesus Christ was crucified and Judas committed suicide. He recognized that Judas was one of them. He recognized that Judas led the Sanhedrin to the garden to arrest and then to later murder Jesus. And he recognized that, P, that Judas had been paid off with blood money and how that he took the money and, and, and took it back to the treasury and it was used to purchase a field called the Field of Blood. It's a field to the south, the southern part of the city of Jerusalem at that time. And that money was used to purchase a field where they would bury criminals and where uh, it, it was, became a place of tombs and graves. And so it became a place known as the Field of Blood to the people and let his habitation be desolate or deserted. Nobody lived there. It was a field of blood. It was a burial ground and no one lived there. Peter saw in the Old Testament scriptures predictions about what would happen in the life of Judas. And after it had happened, he drew attention to that, that God had done what he said he would do. And here's what I find to be really interesting. If Peter took those psalms 
before Jesus was crucified, before Judas did what he did, there was not sufficient information in those psalms for Peter to read those psalms and say, Aha, Judas! Those psalms were provided and those inspired statements were provided so the apostles after the fact could look back to those prophetic scriptures and psalms and say, hey, look at this. What God said through David is exactly what came true and what happened with Judas in Judas' life. And so the prophecy became that which enabled them to look back at past events and realize that God had predicted it much earlier. I find that to be intriguing. Looking back, he saw the fulfillment of God's word that had just recently unfolded. Now that sets my mind to work. I asked the question, how much prophecy is like that? How many times does the prophetic scripture not give us enough information to predict a certain place or a certain person or a certain event, but it gives us enough information that after it happens, we look back and say, wow, look what God did. And it becomes a faith-building exercise to those who know their Bible, who read and study their Bible, so that when something happens in the world, they say, hey, that reminds me of something. And they go back and they find it in the Bible, and they say, look what God just did in our world, exactly what he had foretold in the Bible. And so prophetic scripture many times becomes a faith builder after the prophecy is fulfilled. But it doesn't contain enough information for prophecy date setting. We know that prophecy date setters have given the world many opportunities to mock Christianity. Not too many years ago, everyone was buying Hagee's books on the blood moons. And they were saying that the rapture has to occur within the next eight months. Because look at what Nassau said. And look about what the blood moons are. And look at what these scriptures say. And, and, and they were predicting when the rapture would occur based on their observation of blood moons. And tying it to statements in scripture that looked like they could line up. But guess what? They didn't line up. Because there wasn't enough information in the scripture to identify a particular time or a particular event that could be expected or could be um, determined by man. But after the tribulation comes and the, and, and, and the, the sun is turned to blood, and, and the moon's, we're, we're going to look back and we're going to say, no, not we, the ones that are here are going to turn back, look back and say, wow, look what God did. And the fulfilled prophecy will build faith. But the problem is when people try to set dates based on ambiguous prophetic statements that don't give enough information to become a date setter. And I find that to be very interesting to me about the dogmatic setting of dates and how Peter 
did not have enough information from Psalms to predict what Judas was going to do or when he would do it. But he had enough information to look back and have his faith strengthened because God did what he said he was going to do. I find that to be quite intriguing. So past predictions are fulfilled and the word of God is authoritative in showing us God's faithfulness regarding past predictions. So the, what did the church do? What's the church known for after Jesus leaves? It's known for its confidence in the word of God. It's known for its unquestionable allegiance to the word of God. It's known for highlighting the word of God because the word of God enables them to see past predictions fulfilled in recent history. And then there's a second thing, and this one is the one that, that really gives us some, some real direction for our behavior. In verse number 20, he also said, and his, this is quoting from Psalms, and his bishopric let another take. Now the word bishopric, it looks like a funny word, it's not a word that we use all the time, it's, it simply means the office held by a bishop. Uh, and the word bishop is one of the three key words used in the New Testament of the office of those who provide leadership for one of God's churches, bishop, elder, and pastor. And those three words are used synonymously. Uh, they are lumped together the same group of men, and each word speaks of a different facet of the work. Bishop is the office that is held. Elder is the maturity of the ones in the office. And pastor is the job description of what the bishop, what the elder in the office of bishop does with his time. And so the three words are used synonymously in the same passages, all referring to the same individual men, just showing three different facets of their work. So when he said, when he quoted Psalms saying, let Judas bishopric, let his office of being a overseer and leader in Jesus' church, let somebody else take. And so they immediately recognized that they have a responsibility as a church body there in the absence of Jesus Christ to take the word of God and let it determine their action. And they immediately moved into action based on their obedience to the word of God. They acted upon what they knew the word of God told them they needed to do. So verse number 21 starts with the word wherefore. Let his bishopric, let his office of bishop, let somebody else be appointed to his office, wherefore? So they're going to move. They're going to act. They're not wasting any time. They are going to obey the word of God. Wherefore, of these men uh, which have accompanied, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, under the same day, that he was taken up from us. So from the time John the Baptist was baptizing repentant believers unto the day Jesus ascended back to heaven, they said, we want to identify somebody who has been with us as apostles. He doesn't have to be an apostle, but he had to be with us as apostles from the time Jesus, John the Baptist was baptizing repentant believers, until Jesus Christ ascended. So somebody that has full awareness of the full ministry of Jesus Christ. They had been with the apostles, trailing Jesus, learning from Jesus for the entire of Jesus' ministry from the beginning to the ascension. They will be experienced. They will be knowledgeable. They will be aware of everything Jesus had taught and practiced. So they want to find somebody who has that kind of experience, 
So he says someone who meets that criteria must one be ordained. That is, he's going to be ordained to become a bishop to fulfill to fill Judah's office for this purpose. To be a witness with us of his resurrection. You know the resurrection, when you read the, the book of Acts and you read some of the sermons in the early part of the book of Acts, the resurrection was a key doctrine. Now, maybe even more often referred to than the actual death of Christ on the cross. Yes, he died on the cross to save us from our sins, but if death conquered Christ, Christ can't give us life if he doesn't have life. So it was the resurrection from the dead, the conquering of death, and coming back victoriously, bodily, physically from the grave that blew their minds, and it became the center point of their attention. And so they wanted to make sure that whoever they ordained to become Judas' replacement will be somebody who has the experience with Jesus Christ so that they can be an adequate witness of Jesus Christ's resurrection. They saw him crucified. They saw him resurrected. They spent 40 days with him. They saw him ascend back to heaven. They will be able to be a good witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they identify two possibilities. Verse number 23 mentions Joseph called Barsabas, surnamed Justice, and uh, Matthias. So they have two guys. Two possible candidates that fit the criteria, but they don't know which of the two candidates is the right one. And so, in verse number 24, they prayed. Now, this is very instructional. We're talking about first principles. We're talking about going back to the first time the church operated without Jesus there to tell them what to do. We saw their corporate prayer life, and now we're seeing their allegiance to the Word of God. The Word of God enables them to interpret what has happened in the world around them, and the Word of God has given them direction to make decisions in what they do. And so what do they do? They pray. And they said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two men thou has chosen. Boy, that, that is so vitally important. You say, why? Because, because churches vote on things. Churches will have a business meeting and, and a motion will be made and seconded, discussed, and then the church will vote. Do you know the purpose of the vote is not to determine what the majority of the people want? We're not a democracy. We're not a, a church, a group that's ruled by the majority of the people. We are a theocracy. There is only one head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. All authority resides in him. Our responsibility is to pray and seek his decision. God, who do you want to be in Judas' place? If you were to go back and read the church constitution... The part about business meetings and the part about voting. You'll read that the, that the vote is called the congregational determination of the will of God. That's the phrase used in place of the word vote. Because usually when we vote, we vote for what we want. That's usually 
how we use the word vote in our modern world. I'm going to vote for what I want. I want chocolate. I want vanilla. I want, I'm going to vote for what I want. But when it comes into the church, what you want and what I want is immaterial. What is material is what does Jesus Christ want for his church. How do we know what Jesus Christ wants for his church? He's no longer here bodily to tell us what he wants. So in place of his presence to tell us what he wants, the church prays. God, help me to know what you want. And that's why for 26 years, when we have a business meeting, we present something to the church. It, particularly if it's anything of any consequence whatsoever, we present something to the church. Then we give the church a week to pray. That's why we have two business meetings in January. One to give out the budget and explain it. Then a week to pray. God, is this what you want? Is this what you have led in? Is this what you've determined is right for your church, for your people? Then after a week of prayer, we come back together for the purpose of determining the will of God. Not for the purpose of voting what we want, but collectively to determine the will of God. And we vote. And we pray that the majority of the church congregation is in tune with God. That we actually do communicate with God. And He actually does help us to know what He wants. And then we trust that when the church has exercised its responsibility to determine the will of God, that we end up doing what Jesus Christ wants us to do. Where do we come up with that? Right here's where we came up with that. That's the first principle of the operation of the church without Jesus Christ's physical presence. And that's why we've done it that way all these 26 years of, 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 of our experience. Now, verse number 26 shows how they determined. That they want to know what does God want uh, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. So, God, we're asking you, show us what you want. Verse 26, and they gave forth their lots. They gave forth their lots. This speaks of the casting of lots. This is the last time in the Bible where the casting of lots is mentioned. It was mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned seven times in the New Testament. And this is the last time that the Bible mentions the casting of lots. So what was the casting of lots? We really don't know. There's nothing in history or the Bible that describes exactly what did it mean to cast lots. It's some kind of a, 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 uh, an action that the results of what happens is believed to have been controlled by God. And so we find it a lot in the old, 70 times in the Old Testament. Think of it as rolling dice or flipping a coin. We're trying to determine what God wants, so we're going to throw something out there and let God determine which side is up, heads or tails. And, and we're going to we're going to trust that God controls that, and that's how God shows us what he wants to do. And that's what they did. They, they cast the lots. Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. Think of a person sitting there, and the lot is cast into his lap. Is that a coin? Is that a flip of a coin? Is that a, a dice? Is that whatever that? It was cast in his, lot, in his lap. And, and when it was cast into his lap, it would reveal, you know, uh, heads up, tails up, whatever. 
And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. It's not a game of chance. God's in control of the lot. And the disposing of the lot will be controlled by God. And that's how many times they determine what God wanted in the Old Testament and in the beginning, very beginning of the New Testament. Now, as I said, that's the last mention of it. It's never mentioned again in the Bible. There's no instruction to churches uh, to, to use that as a mechanism. Some have speculated that, that right after Acts 1 is Acts 2. And in Acts 2, the Spirit of God took over control of the operation of the church on earth. And now the Spirit of God is in control of the uh, church. And uh, the fact that they have a Bible being written, given them instructions, uh, without the New Testament, if all you got is the Old Testament, you're, you don't have a lot of information about exactly how to do things and what God wants done. So the New Testament is being written. The Holy Spirit is present now directing the operation of Jesus' church. And some have speculated that that's why the idea of casting lots, flipping a coin, does God want us to do this or that, uh, was no longer instructed of God's people in the New Testament to utilize that. Rather, we have in the New Testament, we have references to the raising the hand. We have references to them expressing what they believe the will of God is. Voting, so to speak. And so... That became the dominant way rather than what had been true throughout the Old Testament. Now, that's not specifically stated. That's speculation. We're not told why God never mentioned lots again. And we're not told why lifting the hand, uh, approving something, uh, kind of took the place and became the mechanism. But what we do know is that the people knew God has a will in this matter. And it's not what we want. It's how can we find out what God wants? Let's pray. God, this is before us. we got these two guys. We don't know which one of them you want to be the, in the office of bishop. So God, would you show us which of the two you want? And verse number 26 said the lot fell uh, to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles and took his place, took Judah's place. What is the lesson in all this? The lesson in all of this is when Jesus left and he's no longer there physically to tell them what to do, to influence them and teach them and direct them, that the church met together and the church did two primary things. The church met together and they prayed. They prayed corporately. They prayed together out loud as a church body. They became known for their corporate prayer meetings. Prayer was an essential part of the life of the first church after the resurrection, after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the second thing they did was they they put great emphasis on the Word of God. The Word of God that helps us understand what's happening in our world around us. To be able to read the Word of God and see what God has done, what He said, and then and then we then it happened. And it also gives us instruction on what he wants us to do in the, in the future, moving forward. Uh, we must always be a place where the priority of teaching and preaching the word of God is important. That is critical in the life 
of a church patterned after the New Testament church. That's why when God had Paul send his last letter, the book of 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a younger preacher, and he said to that younger preacher, he said, I charge thee, I charge thee before God, I charge thee before Jesus Christ. This is, this is what he's going to tell him to do is so vitally important that he calls God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to witness what he's going to tell Timothy to do and that Timothy will hear what he tells him to do knowing that God the Father and God the Son has been called to give attention and to hear this instruction. And what was the instruction? Preach the word. Preach the word. The, the trends in preaching have changed a lot during my lifetime. I've seen the trends of preaching change dramatically. I, I've seen that, uh, I, I hear, I hear the, the nomenclature, the, 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 the cliches used of modern day um, views of preaching. Um, the word practical is one of the big catchwords, catchphrases. It, it seems like there's a great desire for preaching to be uh, practical little life help lessons to tweak my life and make my life better. And there seems to be, as I've observed over the years, I've seen a deterioration of the preaching of the Word of God and in its place, life help lessons to tweak your life and make everything better. But God said to Timothy, preach the Word. Be instant in season and out of season. That means preach the word when it's popular to preach the word. And preach the word when it's not popular to preach the word. There'll be times when it is popular in culture for a preacher to preach the word of God. But there'll be other times in culture where that's no longer, that's no longer popular. And, and, and it's, it's out of season to preach the word of God. So Paul told Timothy, calling God the Father and God the Son to take notice and to be a, 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 a witness to the charge to Timothy. Timothy preached the word of God, verse by verse, line by line. What does God say? What is the truth of the word of God? Preach the word when it's popular, when it's not popular. Because you will find that there will be people who want somebody to tickle their ears. They'll want somebody who will be a spiritual influence on them that'll tell them what they want to hear. It'll, it'll tickle their ears. He'll make them feel better about themselves. He'll give them what they want. And you know that that's not what God wants. That's what Paul was telling Timothy. The time will come when that will be the reality that you'll live in. That, that comes and goes in, in cultural, in, in religious developments. Uh, there'll be different seasons. But what is always right, whether it's in season or out of season, is to not give people what they want, but preach the word of God. 
And we see that in this first church service after the ascension of Jesus Christ when he's no longer there. They have a passion for the scriptures to help them interpret the world around them that they've seen and to give them the instructions of what they need to do with the actions of their lives. The word of God is critical in their lives. So, what can you do? You see at the bottom of the little worksheet, uh, sermon worksheet, what can I do to encourage obedience to the Bible at CBC? I, I, I want CBC to be a place where corporate prayer is our number one thing we're known for. The corporate prayer life of the church. And number two, that what the church is known for is the hunger and passion for the Word of God. How do I as a church member enhance that? How do I encourage that? How do I help that to become reality, this passion for the Word of God? Well, I put four things down there. Number, number one, take your Bible study to the next level. Are you a Bible student? Do you read your Bible? Do you study your Bible? Are you a student of the Word of God? First thing you can do to help the church as a whole be passionate for the Word of God is for you as a church member to be passionate for the Word of God so that you recognize the truth of the Word of God when it is preached. Remember those of Berea uh, that when Paul preached, they said, I don't know, Paul, we never heard this one before. We're going to go check it out. They went home and got their Bibles out. They wanted to find out if Paul was preaching the truth. And Paul said, you're more noble than those of Thessalonica. They just took what I said and they believed it. You guys are more noble. You went home and studied your Bibles to see if it was true. Remember the importance of it as an individual to know your Bible. Um, of course, this is the beginning of the year. Some people start patterns of Bible reading. We have in our literature rack, I think, 12 little bookmarks. Uh, the Bible divided up into 12 bookmarks to chapter by chapter check it through. I used this one year and really enjoyed this. The Essential 100 Bible Reading Plan. 100 chapters in the Bible that helps you go from Genesis to Revelation and, and catch the mountaintops of the Bible in 100 chapters. That's an interesting read of the Word of God. And then the Bible's amazing story. Uh, we got some of these to be able to give out to people, uh, to unsaved people that don't know anything about the Bible. Um, uh, David Cloud took uh, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and he pulled out of it the, some of the key, like this guy pulled out 100 key chapters, he pulled out the story of the Bible. So someone who doesn't know what the Bible's all about, they can sit down and with this uh, 143 page little booklet, they can read the story of the Bible. That's a great, great set of, uh, of Bible reading devotions with your kids at the dinner table uh, over a process of weeks to be able to read the storyline of the Bible. These are things you can do. Uh, take your own Bible study and your Bible reading up a notch uh, so that you can become uh, more uh, attuned to the Word of God. You see number two there, enter a mentoring relationship. It was great to see this morning a new convert meeting with one of our men here at the church. After church in the prayer room, they were sitting going over some mentoring lessons. And uh, it's a great thing when people are mentoring other people. And so you can, you can seek to get into a mentoring relationship. Number three, discuss sermon handouts. Take the, uh, I know some, I remember one church that had a small group that met every week as a small group ministry. And they, every week they took the pastor's sermon handout. And then they would meet as a group of men, I think on a Saturday morning for breakfast or something like that. They would meet and discuss how that 
impacts their lives, how that truth or that passage or that theme or whatever it was impacts their life. That's, you, know, you, can, you can take the, the sermon worksheets from Sunday and use them in family devotions and talk uh, to your family about the Word of God. Number four, you can join a Bible study fellowship class on Sundays at 9 a.m. and get involved in Bible study. These are all things that a person, an individual can do to be able to, uh, to encourage uh, the, the development of a church family to be passionate for the Word of God and to be, um, to be a person who has great appreciation and love for the Word of God. Let me close by getting you to turn over to Acts chapter 6. I mentioned that this at the end of the message last Sunday morning. Let me just get you to turn to it. Acts chapter 6. Uh, there were two things that were present in the first church service the first 10-day elongated time of the church together, there were, there were um, two things that highlighted that ministry. Number one was their corporate prayer, and number two was their attention to the Word of God. A couple chapters later in Acts chapter 6, there's a little bit of a, a squabble in the church, and uh, they decide to appoint uh, some men that ended up being what, what, is, uh, what is believed by many. I, I, I'm one of them that this was the prototype, the beginning of the deacon ministry in the church, so that the pastors could focus on developing the church around two themes. And so they said, in verse number 2, the 12, this is the 12 uh, apostles uh, that we saw was, were called bishops, as a, from Judas being replaced as bishopric, having somebody else take, the 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, look ye out among yourselves. And so they identified the individuals who were going to be ordained to this business. Verse number four, But we will give ourselves continually to, and notice there are two things mentioned. They are the very same two things that were present in the first church service after Jesus Christ had physically left and gone back to heaven. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And it's in the same order that we found them in Acts chapter 1. The church was known for its prayer ministry. It was known for its prayer life. That was number one. That was key. That was front and center. The prayer and then their attention to the ministering of the Word of God to the congregation. Those two themes. The pastors said, we're going to focus our time developing the life of the church so that the prayer life of the church and the ministering of the word of God in the church will be the two earmarks for which we are known as a New Testament church. People will say, oh yeah, that church over there across from a town hall, they pray. They pray. And they take the word of God seriously. They preach the word of God and teach the Word of God continually. Those were the earmarks of the very first church service after Jesus Christ went back to heaven.